This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, long-form, and unscripted. Deep Color is supported by The Armory Show as it celebrates its 25th anniversary. The Armory Show is New York City's premier art fair and leading cultural destination for discovering and collecting the world's most important 20th and 21st century art. The fair features presentations by leading international galleries, innovative artist commissions, and dynamic public programs. Since its founding in 1994, The Armory Show has served as a nexus for the art world inspiring dialogue, discovery, and patronage in the visual arts. This episode profiles Eric Shiner. Eric is the Artistic Director for White Cube in New York. He was previously Senior Vice President of Contemporary Art at Sotheby's, and before that, spent eight years at the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh as the Milton Fine Curator of Art, and subsequently the museum's director. Shiner is a leading scholar on Andy Warhol and Asian contemporary art, and curated the inaugural Yokohama Triennial in 2001. He also curated the focus section for the 2013 edition of the Armory Show. This conversation was recorded at the 2019 Armory Show in the Media Lounge on Pier 94. And in real time, there's some sort of uh, time warp happening in my brain right now. Yeah, that is weird. um, But I, I guess I wanted to start off with a little bit of the historical. What was your introduction to the Armory Show? Or, well, how did you participate in it first? Were you an uh, uh, art enthusiast, a viewer, a curator, a gallerist? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, what, was, what was your sort of path in? I was an independent curator the first time that I came to the Armory Show in the early 2000s, so probably 2003, 2004, something like that, when I was living here in New York City. And, of course, being an independent curator in New York, you're constantly looking for... The next intriguing, gig. wonderful yep. artist, and the next gig, yeah. whether it be at a gallery or at a museum or right. wherever it happens right. to be. So the Armory is a really good place to see a vast array of artwork and a vast array of people. Uh-huh. It's a networking heaven here. Sure, of course. Uh, do you remember, so in those sort of first curatorial projects that you did here, can you uh, conjure up what those projects were and who were involved? Well, there were a lot of spin-offs of things that I did Um, based on early iterations of conversations that probably happened here. One of my great character flaws is never remembering where I meet people. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. Say la vie. Yeah. But certainly, eventually, I ended up curating two shows here at the Armory itself when I did the Focus USA section in 2013 and then the Platform section in 2017, Mm -hmm. which was really, really fun to think about how to infuse a commercial art fair with installations that matter. Right. Uh, I know one of the people that you worked with was Liz Magic Laser. Yeah. Can you can you kind of recap what her project was? It was absolutely incredible, and I'm actually still somewhat in awe that the Armory Show supported the project because we were l- turning the lens on to the fair itself, mm-hmm. the critical lens. Right. And we literally looked at the number of VIP cards distributed, and the VIP bags actually said that you were blank of... 600 from the super VIP group right, or right, 2,000 right. Right. for These the different so-so VIP yeah, yeah, group yeah. and then 10,000 regular VIPs, right. which questions if you're really VIP in the first place, which 
in relationship to art, the whole concept of VIP is somewhat loaded anyway, to be frank. But we were really able to look at that, and the fair was so supportive. And as you know, Liz even did study groups and um, research sessions where she invited people to come in and advise what her artist project should be for the Armory Show. And she was actually behind a two-way mirror doing sketches of these um, groups the entire right. time. Right, it was and kind of about voyeurism. Voyeurism. Who was the participant, who was the viewer. 100%. Yeah. And then here at the fair, we actually installed the show behind one of those two-way mirrors. So the viewer had to go into this room and then look back onto the fair right. as though they were doing research on the subjects traversing all of the galleries. It was really, really smart. Great. Uh, maybe it's, a, I think, for a little bit more context, taking a step back and explaining to listeners what the focus section is. That, that's a section of the fair that each year uh, uh, someone gets selected to curate it. Yep. Is and that how to it works? invite galleries yeah. to participate in this specific section of the fair. Mm-hmm. They've done geographical um, deep dives. Mine happened to be the United States, but I wanted to look at it from a very international perspective. But they've also done the Middle East and Africa, and it tends to have a geographical focus when right. they were doing it. Right. And then does that do those site-specific places sort of dictate the the narrative or the theme? Yeah, it's all about what one Sometimes. as a curator wants to do. Yeah, yeah. So I invited galleries from all over the world to participate as long as the work of the artists they showed had something to do with the vast concept of America, good, bad, or indifferent. Right. Yeah. Uh, so if you were to curate uh, the focus or the platform section, say, this year, what what approach would you take? Well, I always try to tie any show that I curate to its moment and to make sure that it's relevant and authentic to its age. And certainly we have a lot going on in our world right now on the political front, on the economic front. And I always am a very big believer and a firm believer that artists have probably more power than most to make change happen and to get people to think in different ways. Mm -hmm. So I would probably, if I were to be doing it this year, would... Um, definitely have a very, very left-leaning um, cadre of artists involved to um, continue to push those buttons. Right, I think that's and important. And challenge the status quo as it stands today. Yeah. Well said. Maybe we can talk about your sort of professional trajectory. I know sure. that uh, um, you've been a curator. I know that you've been a director at different museums, including the Andy Warhol Museum. Mm-hmm. You're a curator there as well. Yep. Um, and now you find yourself heading up a uh, white cube yeah. here in New York. Yeah. Um, talk about that journey from one place to the next. And you, uh, let's not forget your role at Sotheby's. Sure. Uh, so talk about sort of that small little, not small, that <laughs> ecosystem yeah. and how they sort of overlapped and introduced each other or you know, sure. sort of linked. Well, none of my professional life makes any sense whatsoever <laughs> because I've done a little bit of everything. Yeah. I've been an advisor. I've been a magazine editor. I've worked at nonprofits, I've run foundations, I've done the Warhol Museum. So I've now I think hit pretty much every angle on the art world. Yeah. And I've Have you ever every, made art? No, that's the one that's thing the one I've that, never okay. done and I never will. So <laughs> for our listeners, everyone's safe, I'm never making anything. <laughs> I took a studio art class in college, yeah. somehow managed to get an A+, plus, but um, realized the world would be a much more beautiful place if I weren't making anything. Right. So, um, at any rate, that will never happen, yeah. unless this is all a big performance. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, everything I've ever done has been in support of artists yeah. and making sure that artists get the resources and the attention that they need. And I luckily have been 
really fortunate to be able to do that from a variety of angles, both from the nonprofit side and making exhibitions happen for artists through to the commercial side and making sales happen. Realizing now, um, looking at it from a 360 degree angle, that each component of an artist's success is very critical to their legacy. Yeah. And museum shows and articles and mainstream publications are just as important as um, success in the marketplace. And it's when that perfect storm of success happens that um, they go into the canon. Right. Well and said. Well said. Yeah. Maybe we could just focus on your role now at sure. White Cube. Uh, I know by my count, there is you work with over 50 artists. Yeah. How do you cultivate and manage all those relationships. I know you probably have a team. Talk about the collaborative aspect of yeah, what you well do. Yeah, well, of course, White Cube has been in existence for 25 years, and Jay Jopling started the gallery in London um, back then. And we now have two galleries in London and one in Hong Kong and an office here in New York. And we have an amazing team of professionals on both the sales side and the artist liaison side. Right. So really, really phenomenal team. We have specialists working with museums all over the world. Again, all in support of our really, really phenomenal group of artists. Right. And it's an honor for me to work with them because so many of them were the radicals of their age and the subaltern voices who were fighting the system and sure. somehow went from being the anomaly to the paradigm, not unlike Andy Warhol, yeah. who yeah. has a very similar storyline. So working with Mona Hatoum or Doris Salcedo or Gilbert and George and Tracy Emin, I mean, the list goes on and yeah. on and on. The Aster, we have such David a great group of artists. David, Christian Marclay. Christian, these are all artists that Marais are doing too. things, Julie, that are doing things much bigger than themselves. Yeah. And it's just a total joy to work with them and to promote their work. And yeah, yeah it's been really, really great since joining a few months ago. It's quite remarkable. Whenever I have an opportunity to speak with a, a, a gallerist or someone that sort of operates in that space, uh, one of the things I like to talk about is the role of the gallerist and what they feel they're responsible for and the role of the artist and what they are responsible for in that mm. dynamic. Sure. Um, can you sort of share your philosophy on that sort of exchange that well, takes I think place? Who's responsible for what? Very basic. that The artist is responsible for coming up with the ideas yeah. and making the work right. and making magic happen because successful contemporary art is about magic and taking the general public, the collector, the museum visitor, whoever, whoever happens to run into the work, taking them out of their everyday reality and transporting them to a different place. It's the role of the gallerist to give a support network that allows that magic to happen, mm -hmm. whether it be through sales, which of course brings much needed Right. financial resource to the artist right. so that she can continue her practice and continue to do this just as it is the gallery's responsibility to help with museum exhibitions and dissemination of the work in those ways yeah. as well yeah. just to make sure this important work is seen and that it does something that it has a catalyzing effect in society to hopefully make some change happen for the better this is maybe a good spot to talk about uh the difference in approach uh, when you have an opportunity to put forward a presentation by an artist in a fair mm -hmm. versus a presentation in a gallery sure. versus even maybe a museum exhibition or something mm -hmm. like that. Can you talk about the different strategies you employ uh, depending on the, the site? Yeah, and that's exactly what it's reliant upon, the site and how much space you have. And obviously, um, an art fair provides a fairly small 
space relative to a gallery of our size, Lake Bermondsey, which is huge. Um, so you always start with the space and figure out what will work and what won't work in that space and what environment and what feeling you can create in said space. Art fairs are quite intriguing in that you can either go the solo booth route and do a deep dive into an artist's career mm -hmm. and um, process, or you can do the best of your gallery, or you can do a new artist that you're testing in the marketplace. So there are a lot of different um, options. We right. tend to do a mixed bag and have done all of those. And it's always just about, for me, putting work into a space, especially in a fair where there is a lot of extra activity going yeah. on, yeah, yeah, i.e. Yeah. thousands of people, and how do you make something s stop someone in their tracks and catch their eye? Right, so right. Putting something that's really, really appealing mm -hmm. in a booth goes a long way. Right. Where people say, oh, let me go in and see what that is. The time signature is different, too. I mean, at a fair, it's typically compressed into three, four days. Yeah, yeah. Um, versus a, a gallery show, which yeah. is maybe a month if you're lucky or oh, shorter. Well, we sometimes. tend to do much do longer, longer shows. Yeah. yeah, so our shows tend to be five to so six. So the pace weeks. in which one can in, uh, take in the show is different, or the, sure. the the work is different too, right? Absolutely. Or you can even return to a gallery show. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's worth mentioning as well. Absolutely, and I also, whenever I have the opportunity to remind people gallery exhibitions are always free mm -hmm. so anyone can go and visit not have to pay an admissions charge and can have this really great intimate relationship with a work of art so I encourage everyone to go to galleries and have those experiences yeah you know you mentioned earlier um, you know art is about magic and me being an artist one of the things I think is magical is the act of selling art there's yeah. a magic trick that takes place there sure. um, and there's this great line I think Hickey said it that uh, um, if you can't sell a handful of air, you have no business being an art dealer. Are you willing to, are you comfortable talking about sort of how you place works of art and how you are persuasive in connecting someone interested in owning a piece of art with the work that you have access to? I would never approach it as such. <laughs> Simply being a trained art historian and a lifelong curator and museum professional, it's not about making a deal or yeah, convincing yeah, yeah. somebody. It's about educating someone and making sure they have the right information so that they can make an informed choice. And I tell every collector I've ever worked with, only buy what you love, only buy what speaks to you, right. what you are going to live with, and this is going to be part of your family, part of your life, and it has to speak to you. And you have to be able to have that faith in the work standing a long test of time um, to be part of your ecosystem. And that's the most important thing, and that's what true collectors do. Yeah, They buy what they love, and they know implicitly. And it might be an artist they collect in depth, or it might be somebody they're doing for the first time, and they feel there's something there. But without that connection, yeah. why bother? Yeah, that's well said. And it also sounds like you sort of will deny that phrase, people that collect with their ears instead of their eyes, or instead oh, of their no, heart. that's very real. You know, I read a quote that uh, you had somewhere in maybe another, another interview or um, an article that said, uh, working with artists is your truest passion. Going back to this relationship with the artist and, and particularly for, you know, one of, the, one of the things that comes up in these conversations are, you know, how artists uh, manage studio visits. When you're visiting a, an artist in their studio, mm -hmm. uh, what are you looking for? What, sort of, what sorts of conversations are you interested in having? Well, how much work do you want to see? 
I want to see as much as I humanly can. Yeah. And when I go into a studio visit, I always say first and foremost that the artist is the one that is going to drive this conversation. Okay, good, yeah. I'm not the type of person that goes in and starts asking questions and starts drilling right away. I let the artists do what they want to do, what they're comfortable with, how they want to navigate it, and how they want to present the work to me or to anyone else. Uh -huh. Then, after that's happened, then we start a dialogue and start talking, and I ask questions based on the conversation and let it develop very organically. And I'm also the type of curator that loves digging around in back rooms yeah. and where things are leaning up against walls and stacked. I want to see what those things are. I imagine and you want to see stuff that's not quite finished. You want to see works in progress. Finished, things yeah. that are 20 years old. Yeah. To get and some sort of timeline. Oftentimes, artists are like, no, you can't see that. Right. That's old. Yeah. I'm like, I don't care. I want to see it. Yeah. And I've found some really wonderful treasures doing that over the years when artists aren't quite sure that something they made 30 years ago might still be relevant or might be good. Yeah. And I some, found some real treasures doing that. So I continue to do that. Great. Uh, let's do a little bit of biography. Sure. Where did you grow up? And maybe if you can recall back what your introduction to art was. Oh, absolutely. I grew yeah. up in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, which is an hour or so north of Pittsburgh. And fortunately for me, my um, family loved collecting things so i grew up going to country estate sales antique oh, stores wonderful. flea markets and without them knowing it they basically were training me how to be a curator because yeah. i was just constantly looking at tabletops finding the cool looking objects, for that one looking thing. for that thing yeah um and my mother would often take me to the carnegie museum of pittsburgh or to the cleveland museum in the cleveland was just as close as pittsburgh was mm -hmm. and i thus was able to be exposed to art very on in fact i actually when i was i think three years old made a mad dash for monet's water lilies at the carnegie museum oh of that's art a good uh, set the, that's um, a good entrance alarm off and the guards <laughs> screamed i didn't touch it of course but yeah i guess i just wanted to be up close to it to see it but mm -hmm. um so i guess it called from a very early age but it was those very early exposures to art and to thinking about art that paved the way for my career to happen you know it's not every day that i get to sit down with a leading expert on andy warhol but here you are here i am how did you be become interested in andy warhol what was your introduction to warhol well mtv was my MTV. introduction yeah. to warhol do you remember um, what year 81. 81. So the first year of MTV. Was Kurt Loder Andy, involved? Oh, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. But Andy was making appearances every now and again on yeah. MTV. Years later, he actually had his 15 minutes show on MTV. Uh -huh. And I just thought that not only was he the coolest thing, but New York was cool. And I came to New York the first time when I was 13 years old and felt somehow that I would be here one day. Mm -hmm. And um, then... Fast forward, um, Warhol dies when I'm a freshman in high school. And, of course, I remember that moment and that right. it was a mainstream media event. And then sort of tucked that away in the back of my head, go off to eventually college where I studied medieval Japanese screen painting and castle architecture. Why not? Right. Somebody has well, to. Well, that's another that's another um, part of your identity, right? Your, yeah. your Asian contemporary yeah, art. Yeah, and yeah. I lived in Japan for six years, mm -hmm. ultimately. But graduating college with a degree in um, 16th century screen painting means you're not really getting a job doing 
that. Right. So luckily for me, the Warhol Museum was opening a few weeks after I graduated from college in Pittsburgh, and I became an intern in the curatorial department there, and then just dove into all yeah. things Warhol. I mean, it sounds kind of like, um, you know, growing up in in and around Pittsburgh played a big role in that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's great. Absolutely. Uh, you know, if Warhol... If Warhol were alive today, how do you think he would be operating with social media? Do you have a point of view on that? Absolutely. I yeah. know that Andy would have been user number two of any application, whether it be Facebook or Instagram. The founder, whether it was Mark or whoever the founder of any app yeah, happens yeah, yeah. to be, likely would have reached out to Andy to be user number two, ah. simply because the trend was constant for... Polaroid for Norelco video cameras. They would reach X, out to They Andy. would always reach out oh, to Andy. Oh, interesting. And say, we're, we have this new product. Will you experiment with it and make art with it? And do you think that's and because he was this incredible artist or probably also his notoriety? Exactly. Both, right? His fame. Yeah. That obviously is really great for branding. Andy's the most famous living person in the world, really. And for him to do something with your new product means free advertising and he loved to do it he never said no mm -hmm. so i'm assuming mark zuckerberg would have said okay andy warhol is going to be friend if he knew who andy warhol was probably would um user number two and then go from there but andy would have loved that concept and i think we can ultimately blame warhol for where we are just with the very notion of in the future everybody will be world famous for right. 15 minutes and look where we are right this is a challenging question but i want to sure throw it out there what do you think warhol would think of trump Huh. Well, I know what he thought of Trump. He hated him. He hated him. Yeah. Read the Warhol Diaries. Yeah. It's all right there. Um, the president actually commissioned Andy to do paintings of Trump Tower. And it wasn't yet under construction, but Andy went to take photographs of the model of Trump Tower, which he then used to create paintings. Um, they were sent um, for viewing. Trump didn't like them and said no, returned them and didn't pay. And from that point forward, Andy started to riff on what a cheapskate he was, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and those paintings are still in the collection of the Andy Warhol Museum accordingly because they were never sold. Right. So they're in Pittsburgh. I've put them into a few shows over the years. Um, but it's all there in the record. Yeah. The di Warhol diaries are quite full of Andy's true opinions on people. Yeah. Continuing this thread on social media and digital uh, consuming of imagery. Um, how do you think that, uh, you know, how we consume culture these days is sort of changing how we consume works of art in real time? Is there any sort of slippage? Do you wish people spent more time in, in real space with works of art? Or is it, do you, are you comfortable with the sort of like capturing images quickly and then moving on? You know, I always think about this and it really has to be what's best for the individual end user. So if the fast method is good for you, then go right ahead as long as you're actually learning something. Like the long gaze is obviously a much better way to look at art and to spend time with it. But if you don't have the time or the means to do that, do what you can to have the exposure and the relationship with art. But try to make time to actually have that lengthy conversation with a work of art. Do the long gaze. Mm -hmm. It's worth it. Yeah, it's well said. Uh, let's talk a little bit about collecting. Sure. Um, since you've been involved in working with collectors, mm -hmm. how has collecting changed in, let's say, the past 10, 15, 20 years? 
it's a totally different world and yet it's exactly the same yeah collecting is not a new habit it's been going on for centuries and there have always been patrons of the arts in various capacities mm -hmm. whether it's uh, mice and wear whether it's the opera whether it's the ballet etc people have supported art and artists for a very long time and certainly collecting is nothing new either um, so where are we today yeah um, we're obviously here at the Armory Show. We're celebrating the 25th year of the Armory. And I did a talk on Monday about those very early years of the fair when it was still over at the Gramercy Park yeah. Hotel when a group of galleries came together and said, let's do a fair in a hotel. And they were literally putting work into the bathtubs. Our Tracy Emin put a quilt onto one of the beds mm -hmm. and populated this hotel space yeah. with contemporary we should also mention that there's and some wonderful pictures of all this on the armory 25 pictures on link. the armory 25 link yeah. on the website yeah. which is such a blast from the past yeah. to see everyone so young mm -hmm. just starting off and some history of and Colin and Pat and Colin and Pat mm -hmm. and it was Paul Morris and um, Mark um, and Colin and Pat who were the four founders of the fair mm -hmm. and thank God they did that just thinking about what was shown and looking at the prices of what those works were i mean we're talking two thousand three thousand dollars max i think for yeah. probably anything at the fair yeah and you know until recently one could still buy something great for two thousand five thousand um and it seems like that's changed like it's a much higher entry point now in terms of numbers to buy something um that may or may not have relevance in the future and I always hope, again, people buy what they love primarily, mm -hmm. but that they make informed decisions right. and they're buying quality um, first and foremost. But it has changed, certainly, in that 25 years. And now this is a full global industry. It was a cottage industry 25 years ago, I think we could safely say. And even smaller, if you look back to the 1950s and 1960s and you know, people would always say, could there ever be another Andy Warhol again, for example? And I don't think there ever could be. Right. The art world that Andy Warhol conquered was a tiny microcosm of the art world mm -hmm. today. Yeah. So and it, it feels like uh, history in that place and time lined up with him perfectly. Perfectly. Yeah. So I don't know if any one artist could ever muster the attention of all of these people that right. are here yeah. today. Right. Um, John Baldessari has a great line uh, where he says, an artist walking into an art fair is not unlike a teenager walking in on his parents having sex. Yeah, yeah. I love that quote. Can you talk about the awkwardness of the artist entering the art fair and the sort of relationship he or she may, may have with the complexities and the exchanges taking place in these things? Again, it's case by case. And some artists love to be here just to know what they're facing <laughs> and to know how to undermine Take it. Take the temperature. To know how to critique it and maybe make fun of it somehow. Yeah. Um, but I've run into several artists today and some are really happy to be here and some are about to have a nervous breakdown Yeah. because this is certainly um, a very specific environment, mm -hmm. but ultimately it is an environment which creates wealth for artists right. and gets cash into their pockets through the sale of their works. And I think that's an incredibly noble thing to make sure artists have the resources to continue their great work. Absolutely. I mean, I think we all strive towards a situation where we're earning a living through the thing yes. we love in. And if a fair can help an artist do 100%. that. 100%. I mean, we all have to sort of salute that. 
for sure. The yeah. starving artist model is nothing that anyone should ever aspire no. <laughs> toward in today's um, age. And you know, knowing the organizers of the fair for a very long time, I know that everyone involved in the armory is committed 1000% to artists and their voice. And that's why we all of us do this, right? Well, many of us do right. this, right. let's say, <laughs> yeah. um, to make sure that those voices are heard in the right way. Well said. Another thing I, I think um, um, sort of comes into the sort of or uh, atmosphere of, of a, a visitor to a fair is the overwhelmingness of yeah. the space and how much information there is to take in and how many people that are to see and speak with. Do you have any tips for visitors on how to how to be in this space and 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 enjoy it and not get lost along the it's way? It's very easy to get lost. <laughs> it's yeah. almost like what your mother Literally would tell emotionally. you, like going out into the woods to play, like drink lots of water and take <laughs> frequent rests. I think that is just as good of advice as any. And luckily there are lots of seating areas where people can take a little break. But it is important to rest the eyes and rest the soul for a moment, um, simply because there's so much wonderful yeah. stuff to look at here. And um, the other great thing is that it's spread out over several days, so you can theoretically come back after Return your initial yeah. pass. Yeah. So that's something that, um, if one has the time, is a really great way to do this. Right. Is there anything specific that you're looking forward to seeing here? Well, I've already gone through. So You've gone through. Yes. What are some I highlights? I was here at eleven o'clock ah. this morning, and did the entire journey nice. through both of the piers. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some great things, and I've seen some not so great things. That's true of any art fair that anyone goes to. But I'm always paying attention to what younger artists are doing and what the general vibe is. Mm -hmm. And the fair seems to be incredibly upbeat, and there is a lot of very colorful and happy work. I was expecting to see a little bit more politically um, loaded work. Sure. Critical work. And I'm not seeing as much as I thought that I might Interesting. otherwise. But as always, just seeing what the temperature um, is putting out to the world. And it seems to be very, very hot. Right. I mean, as a curator and, a, and a, an art dealer, do you have a take on maybe why there isn't more politically charged commentary work on display here well, being presented? It's always a matter of each gallery determining what they think will sell at yeah. any precise moment in time. And, you know, certainly artists have a lot of options in making political statements, and maybe museum shows are better places to do that. Right. And yet there is still loaded artwork for sure. There's mm -hmm. a huge, wonderful... Um, almost draped for a stage, a curtain for a stage that just says, I am an American um, here at the fair, which um, I'm assuming references um, the plight of Asian Americans during World War II who mm -hmm. um, had to put signs in their windows of storefronts saying, I am an American to prove their loyalty to America vis-a-vis mm -hmm. um, -vis the war with Japan specifically. I actually did an installation with a Japanese artist in the Focus USA section um, on that very topic. Oh, great. Yeah. What was the last great piece of culture that you experienced, saw, read, heard, um, that dropped you to your knees, that you had this visceral emotional response to? doesn't have to be the fair, just, you know. That's only happened memory. to me twice in my life. Oh. So um, it's very easy for me to recall. It's, it's literally only happened twice to have that level of a visceral reaction sure. where I felt a physical change mm -hmm. and cried in both cases. 
to be direct. And one of them was Matthew Barney at the Guggenheim mm-hmm. when he had his retrospective at the Guggenheim Museum many, many moons ago. And for some reason, one of his sculptures stopped me dead in its tracks. It was an upside-down mirrored saddle rotating um, from a pole that extended from the ceiling with a bookcase filled with objects and wax, um, objects of some sort, riffing on books. So that stopped me in my tracks. I still don't know why. I grew up on a horse farm, so maybe something there. Sure. is a little bit... um, questioning my sanity and that Matthew Barney made me cry like really <laughs> but okay yeah. and then the other is much more noble and um, Kara Walker um, a subtlety over at the Domino Sugar Factory oh man when I rounded the corner I was with a museum colleague another director and we walked around the corner and it literally just punched us both in the face yeah and I got tears in my eyes immediately mm-hmm. and it was just such a powerful sculpture a monument to the atrocities of the past in this country and um one of the most powerful things i've ever seen agreed and i also appreciated the 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 sort of vastness of the audience that it brought in i mean the couple times i went i mean there were all different types of people taking that in i think that's uh one of the great successes of her work agreed for sure fully um What's on the horizon? Do you have a dream project coming up, or is there anything you want to you want to sort of share what you're working towards? Well, I just always am trying to do new and innovative things, and thinking about what lies ahead for the art world. Mm-hmm. And you know, right now, I'm really intrigued by what alternative reality is going to bring to all of this, and like VR, VR, uh-huh. AR, and thinking about the fact that very soon um, artists are already making things in these technologies, sure. and very soon. Um, this world is going to have to figure out how to sell it. And right. I think that it brings huge opportunities, especially for performance artists, mm. to finally be able to record their work in an additional way that can be sold and can be commodified and traded and thus bring resources and cash into the pockets of performance artists in really interesting new ways. So paying attention to that a lot and always just trying to have fun along the way yeah well said well thank you eric it's been great thank to you. talk with you and uh share your your memories from fair's past yeah. and uh enjoy the rest of the weekend thank you so much Thanks. it was a pleasure we've made it to the end a quick reminder that deep color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners Help support and sustain this project by making a donation online at deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings. Be sure to share this project within your community and subscribe and rate in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.